As I mentioned, let's turn our Bibles to Matthew chapter 4 as we continue studying through this book of the Bible, Matthew chapter 4. If you're looking in these black Bibles, that can be found on page 809. And we're going to look at verses 18 through 25, verses 18 through 25 of Matthew 4. One of the things I've been thinking a lot lately about Jesus as we study Matthew's gospel is that I want to make sure we never divorce Jesus from both his divine context, him being fully God, but then also his human context, him being fully man. And I think all through Matthew's gospel, you see glimpses of both happening all the time. Jesus is fully a human, just like you and me. He, in fact, was the perfect human in part because of his divinity, but I think sometimes when we study the Bible, we might think of Jesus as just like in this completely far-off category that's not similar to me and us. And so one of the things I think that might be helpful is we turn our attention to this passage is to kind of root ourselves in the Jewish history of discipleship and, and, and think through what would it have been like to have Jesus call people to follow him? Well, like from an earthly perspective, from, from a heavenly perspective, we'll see that Jesus is, has power and authority in his words, but from an earthly perspective, think about the background of Jewish schools of discipleship. For example, I'm going to list three of them. The, the first is Beit Sefer, and it's called the House of the Book. This is basically like your elementary school. If you're a little Jewish boy or girl, you would learn how to read and write uh, you'd memorize the Torah by the age of 12 through this school. Do you all know what the Torah is? It's the first five books of the Bible. So in these black Bibles in front of us, that's from like page one all the way to the end of Deuteronomy, which is page 177. Memorize 177 pages. Could you imagine? Any parents thinking, now this is what's wrong with my children, you know? Take that, Awana, you know, whatever. You know, like we need, we need to get on a memorization plan like the Jewish kids were. After age 12, you would start to learn a trade if you were a male, the family business. If you were a woman, you'd start thinking and moving toward marriage. Think Jesus' mother, Mary. She was pledged to be married, and almost everybody seems to agree, as like a teenager, around 12, 13, 14 years old. That was customary. It was normal. I don't know how you women are feeling about that thought. We're in a different world today, are we not? But this was the way of life for most people. You, you go to the first school, you learn the Torah, you learn it in and out, then you go and move on to a trade. But for a select few, you'd move to a second school. These would have been like the top 10% of the class, and they showed a lot of promise, and they would go to Beit Talmud, the house of learning. This was a school that was built on the side of a synagogue. So a synagogue was basically, think like a modern-day church building type facility, and it would have been to teach the Torah and have worship services and different things like that. There's a whole history behind the synagogue movement. It's not in the Old Testament, but anyway, imagine that sort of facility. There'd be a, a separate room for this particular school, the House of Learning. The full-time job for these teenagers after, you know, 12, 13, 14 years old, their full-time job was to learn the Hebrew from what was called a scribe, basically like a Hebrew scholar, and they would memorize not just the Torah, they'd build off of that, but the entire Tanakh, which is basically what we call the Old Testament. So, you guys look in your Bibles, in these black Bibles, that's 803 pages. Check this one out. Could you imagine memorizing this much? Like, we have a hard time just reading through the Old Testament every year. How about memorizing the whole thing in a couple years. So we're talking serious scholarship on the scriptures. And they would memorize this Old Testament, and you'd be looking for the best and the brightest to rise from the top. Think of the valedictorian of your high school or something. Think the summa cum laude, the kid that gets the full-ride academic scholarship. A few of those people, the best of the best of the best, would move on to this third level of training, and it was called the Talmudim. And this is, by the way, the Hebrew word for scholar or 
really simply put, disciple. The best of the best of the best would become a disciple of a rabbi. Now, in order to become in this level, you not only have to pass those first two levels of schooling, but you have to go through extensive interviews. So imagine applying for like a PhD program or something here today as an equivalent, some sort of higher level of education. And you need to have like that one scholar or expert in the field. And you need him to endorse you to be the like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna oversee your education at this level. That, that's what this level is. It's basically, I think, the equivalent of like our doctoral programs here today in the 21st century. These people would have been handpicked after the student pursued. You know, so I'm currently a, a PhD student. I'm doing a doctorate. I'll be gone this week in Kansas City. I had to pursue a relationship with the people that I wanted to do uh, school with. Now, eventually I get matched, but that's, that's a, a familiar process. I was not hand-selected by a professor, you know. He did not come after me and say, Phil, I see a lot of promise in you. I'd like you to do a doctoral program. And by the way, I'm going to fund it. You're going to be with me. I'm going to teach you everything I know. That's not what I'm doing. I'm just taking the initiative and saying, look, I want to really study some more, and so I'm doing more school. That was normal back then, too. If you were a Talmudim, if you were a disciple of a rabbi, it was a lot of your own initiative and you showing promise and the desire to get further studies. If the rabbi thought that you had the skills, talents, and work ethic to become a rabbi one day, he would then say at some point, follow me. Come be with me. Now, with that context in mind, let's read our passage. Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 and following. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. We'll pause there for now. I think it's important for you to realize that context in order to make sense of how crazy it is what Jesus just did that I read. And so we're going to meditate on this further, but let's first just notice that the first words Jesus speaks to his eventual followers, what are they? The first words Jesus speaks, not as we have recorded here in Matthew, but the first words to his followers. Come, get behind me. That would be the, the more literal translation. Come follow me. Follow me. That's what you have here. What are the last words that Jesus speaks to his disciples at the end of Matthew 28? What are they? Go, go make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. And lo, I'll be with you to the end of the age. His first words to his disciples, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. His last words are go make disciples. Th these two ideas do not seem separate, right? What do you say if you're a rabbi and you're trying to take apprentices? I think that's, by the way, the best synonym for English language today for you to capture your mind around what is a disciple? It is an apprentice. What, if you wanted an apprentice and you're a rabbi, you, you would say, follow me. And then he says to these disciples, now go. After you've learned all the, you could learn from me, I want you to go make disciples of all nations. So I think if we were to sum all this up, if you were to take all the studies that I've personally done, all the studies that you could possibly do, 
And I think if we were to look and say, like, what is discipleship according to the first century, just very earthly and humanly, what did rabbis typically do? Not particular just to Jesus, but just in general, what were you supposed to do if you were called to follow a rabbi? I think you boil down to two things. Be with your rabbi and be like your rabbi. So our two points are going to be be with Jesus. That's our rabbi. I'm not your rabbi. Just to make that clear, I'm not claiming to be a rabbi. I'm not claiming to be an expert. We're saying that there's one rabbi that we're following. It's Jesus. Be with Jesus. Secondly, be like Jesus. And so I would like to make these the two points for this week's sermon. And because these two points have so much, and because this is so near and dear to my heart and our churches and the core of what we are as a church, look at the banners next to me. It's the very center of our mission as a church. Glorify Christ, how? How do we bring honor and glory to Jesus on this earth? Answer, by making disciples. That's what we have decided as this church got started. This will be a quick, easy tagline. Well, it's not there, is it? I should just point this way. By making disciples of all nations. So I think we really need to make sure as we're in Matthew's gospel that we think through this. What does this mean for you all that say, you know, I want to be a part of a church like Embassy Church? Well, I hopefully over the next two weeks, including this week, will help you understand what it means to be with Jesus and be like Jesus. I'm going to overview these things this week. And in next Sunday, on our anniversary Sunday, I'd like to further spell out the implications of how I see us making disciples in 2018 and beyond. So, like, what's the next phase of this church? Where are we going? What are the things that we need to be thinking about as disciple makers? So I want us to look at the overview of these ideas today, and the next week let's spell them out into greater detail. So first, be with Jesus. Be with Jesus. Follow me. Now again, if, if, we, if we put this in its context, first century rabbi context, you need to realize that this means literally following Jesus. Like walking behind him and around him. Did you notice that the very first words of our passage was what? While walking by the Sea of Galilee. You'll notice throughout reading Matthew's gospel that he is an itinerant rabbi. It means he, he doesn't have one spot where he's like an expert scholar at an institution. And he just sits and teaches there. He goes around from synagogue to synagogue. That's normal in first century. Jesus, in fact, is not doing a lot of things that are abnormal to first century rabbis. It's just the things he says and how he does it and then the miracles that we'll get to, like those are abnormal, right? So, so let's not separate these two ideas. In one sense, he's just a normal, ordinary, uh, average rabbi. In another sense, he's unlike any rabbi that we have ever seen and will ever see, which is why today we still want to follow him. So 24-7, seven days a week, all your meals, you're eating, you're sleeping, do any of you have personal space problems? You know, you know what I'm saying? Like you like your own private space? You would not make for a good disciple in this context. Because this is interweaving lives together where you are in each other's space constantly because the disciple, the Talmudim, is trying to learn everything he possibly can from his disciple. His movements, his mannerisms, his way of speech, everything he taught, everything he does, his way of life. Not just theology. These are not just lectures. It is everything. It's all-encompassing. And this is, in fact, what it means to follow Jesus. Literally, this is what they would have done. There's a Hebrew blessing that says, May you be covered with the dust of your rabbi. Picture that. Remember, we're in first century Palestine. There's not paved roads and sidewalks. You're in the desert and so you're walking along, and if you're following, literally coming behind your rabbi in a posture of saying, I'm following you, but it, actually following, then the dust after the end of the day should be all over you from your rabbi. And that would be like a sweet blessing. Oh, the privilege to be considered one of these disciples. Oh, to have the dust. That's, that's the prayer. What a, what a blessing it would be to have my rabbi's dust all over me at the end of the day. Following Jesus involves constant, continual relationship of being with him all day long. Very recently, I've had an excellent illustration of this with my two-year-old son. He has become 
addicted to Bob the Builder. And we have a little toy figurine, and Bob is here at church, I believe, today. If you've ever had children and seen them go through phases where they just get locked on to something, this is what he's going through right now. He sleeps with Bob. He eats with Bob. He showers. Well, he doesn't shower. He bathes with Bob. You get the idea? Bob is everywhere, and he talks about him constantly. He is enamored with Bob the Builder. That, my friends, is what discipleship looked like when Jesus says, come, follow me. Remember Bob the Builder and my son John. Then you'd get the picture here. Following Jesus involves 24-7 constant relationship with him. It also involves leaving something. Did you notice that in our text? These men, so think of the introduction I just gave. Where were these men at in their stage of the Jewish schools? What are they doing? What did it say they were doing? Well, they were casting nets. For they were what? They were fishermen, which means they only went to stage one of the school, right? At 12, 13, 14, that's the youngest these men could possibly be. Their dad's still alive, and he's still working, so he's not old and retired yet. So I'm assuming somewhere between 12 and 30 these men are. We have no idea how old they were. But their whole life is ahead of them, is it not? Their whole life essentially is ahead of them, and they're working the trade that they would have always thought that they would have worked. And this, this, my friends, is one of those moments where you need to get back into a teleporter, back in time in your mind right now, and remember that there was no such thing, what we're accustomed to, of like, you know, if I want to just change careers, I think I'm just going to get a new job, you know? Like, if you're this kid that's working with your dad, this is all you've ever known, and that's all you've ever thought. I'm going to be a fisherman. Get yourself in that context for a moment. Thinking about being with your dad on the boat until he gets too old, and then you taking over and you being a fisherman your entire life. That's why these words are startling. Immediately, they get out of the boat. They leave something. I think it should be made sure that we see this. Immediately, verse 22 says, they left the boat and who else did they leave? Their father. We've got two double whammies here in this text. Number one, there's no kind of career change middle of the career. Like you're either on the course to being a disciple at Talmudim because you passed the first school and then the second school and you went through the interviews. Did these guys do that? Not at all. But yet you have a rabbi, a great master teacher coming up to these men and saying, come follow me. Now we know from other stories in Luke's gospel, he illustrates this call in fantastic ways about how Luke tells us that Jesus says, hey guys, go throw your nets on the other side of the fish. And they like, it's this amazing miracle. It's like the, the God side of Jesus is like, wow, really clear in Luke's gospel. In Matthew's gospel, I think that the human side is made really clear, at least in this story. That he says, come follow me. And humanly speaking, you'd have to be an idiot to not take up that offer. It'd be like me having the best Bible scholar in the entire world right now come and say to me, Phil, I want you to leave embassy and I want you to study under me for the next three years. I'll pay for everything. Now, for those of you that like me being your pastor, that's maybe not the coolest thought. But I mean, you could imagine, like for a young guy, like, that's an amazing opportunity. I, I should take him up on that. That would be, and, and so these men do. They immediately leave. But I want to make sure all of us are realizing that following Jesus always involves leaving something. It always has. It costs a lot. Not only did they leave their job and their profession, but they left their father in a first century Jewish culture. Middle Eastern culture still to this day. People that are not in America, they prioritize and make important the relationship of the mom and dad and honoring them into their old age much better than we probably do here in 21st century America. So imagine, that's what we're reading here. And they leave their father. Hey, where are you guys going? <laughs> you got to think Zebedee's thinking in his mind. Hey, boys, this, this is my retirement plan. You, where are you going? Just imagine yourself in that context. So Christian, what have you left? to follow Jesus. If you've not left anything, then you probably aren't following Jesus. Have you left comforts? 
Have you left friends and family? Do you know yesterday I was talking to two of our people that are here right now? And they were talking about the weightiness of telling their parents that they want to follow Jesus. How heavy that is for so many people, even in our very church. Some of you that have grown up in Christian homes, pray for these brothers and sisters. That when they follow Jesus and they get baptized, their parents are upset, they disown. All kinds of things happen when people follow Jesus, but it's worth it, isn't it? It's worth it, it seems, in this context, if you're understanding who Jesus is. So my question to you all is, if you've not left very much to follow Jesus, it's probably because you don't think Jesus is that great. The follow happens when you understand who the me is. Not follow Phil. If I'm calling you to follow me, guys, it's, you've probably got a lot of better things you could do. But that's not what I'm calling you to. Follow Jesus. Be with Jesus. Think of the parable that Jesus tells later in Matthew 13. I think we have it up on the screen here. Matthew 13, 44 through 46. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then, in what? In his sorrows, in his sadness, in his disappointment, in his just, well, reluctance. What does it say, friends? In his joy, he found a treasure so valuable that he goes and sells all that he has. He's willing to leave everything because he knows that everything he's leaving pales in comparison to the surpassing worth of the treasure in the field. This is how Jesus teaches the importance of following him. If you understand who the me is, you understand it is a treasure in a field. So leaving your family, leaving your friends, leaving your popularity, leaving possibly a job because you know that to make disciples will be very difficult in your current job that you're doing. For some of the people, that's what they do. They leave their job. These men lost their job because they knew to follow Jesus the way he was asking meant leaving their job. Some people need to leave the location geographically. Did we not send out two people last year who have experienced much difficulty even in recent weeks, Billy and Olga? Even death has been knocking at the door in Billy's life as he is experiencing the difficulty of following Jesus in another country. And they've lost friends and family immediately around them. They've left them to follow Jesus. People have been doing that since this day, and people are continuing to do it because he's, he's worth it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. May, may it be clear, at this church, to follow Jesus should take sacrifice, but it's sacrifice in comparison to the amazing, surpassing glory of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. Leaving the things of this world is always hard, but as Matthew 19 makes clear, when Jesus is talking to the rich young ruler, do we remember this story? A very rich man is asked to follow Jesus, and the rich young ruler says, nope, I'd rather have my treasures than leave them to follow you. And the disciples say what? Next passage. See, we left everything and followed you. What then will we have? They're starting to count the cost a little bit. Well, was this even worth it? And the answer is, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. I know that that may not like register to you all, but that's awesome to think that you will then have the reign and rule of the whole earth in your hands again as it once was in Genesis 1. The rule of Adam and Eve is being restored. That's what he's referring to here. Next slide. And everyone who has left their houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. You're crazy not to follow Jesus. Because if your only reason is, well, then I have to give up this. Then you just don't know what you're getting. Following Jesus is not ultimately in the grand sense of things. Yes, practically speaking, earthly speaking, it is a sacrifice here and now, but it is short and it is fleeting of a sacrifice. 
we have awaiting us, ruling nations, being over the 12 tribes, you know, establishing the order of the, the world back together again, and having friends and family a hundred times over. And so this is the passage I read to our two friends who were considering the cost of leaving their family. You, you will gain a hundred times more family members when you follow Jesus. So that's why we leave. And why you should leave as well is because to follow Jesus is not to do something that he hasn't already done. What did it cost Jesus to follow the will of the Father and come down to the earth in order to make this call even possible? Think about that for a while, my friends. Meditate not on the great cost for you to follow Jesus. Meditate on the great cost it cost Jesus to make you a disciple. He left his father's throne so infinite and free, as the great Charles Wesley hymn says, came down to us and he died for us. He gave everything. He left everything. Not just friends and family, not just the comforts of heaven, not just the throne of heaven. He humbled himself to the point of death and gave us his very life. I just ask, is there something more that Jesus could have left or given or done to prove his commitment for you? And should that not spur us on to want to follow this Jesus? How do we do it? How do we follow Jesus? We've said, be with Jesus. That's our first point. Be with him 24-7, all day long. Leave stuff. You have to leave stuff in order to be with him. Have you noticed that in your own life? In order to spend time with my wife, I have to leave watching television and Super Bowl games, for example, which is a true story. One time I went out on a date during the Super Bowl, and we watched Phantom of the Opera instead of the Super Bowl, and I don't regret it for a moment on this Super Bowl Sunday. Sometimes to choose to be with someone here on this earth, you have to leave other things. And it's worth leaving those things. But I want to ask this final question about how to be with Jesus before we move on to this second question and the second idea of being like Jesus. How, how do you do that if Jesus isn't here now? Have you ever wondered that? How do I follow Jesus? I don't see him anywhere, Pastor Phil. Where is he at? Did he just float away and disappear into the space? Vanish like a mist? Disintegrate into nothingness? No, he is reigning and ruling at the right hand of the Father as a human being representing us before God the Father as he ascended to the right hand. That's where he is. Well, how am I supposed to follow him there? Answer, Acts chapter 1 says he ascended. Acts chapter 2 says he sent down. What did he send down in Acts chapter 2? The Holy Spirit. When we keep reading the rest of the story, we don't get these answers here, but just as a fast forward through the New Testament, and you get to Acts chapter 2, the way that we are spending time with Jesus, being with Jesus, the way that happens is by moment, by moment, dependence, keeping in step with the Holy Spirit. Think Galatians 5, which we studied recently. Keep in step with the Spirit, and you will bear good fruits of the Spirit. There's only one command in that whole section. It's not try and be loving. It's not try and be peaceful. It's not try and be self-controlling. It is one command. Keep in step with the Holy Spirit. Walk in the Spirit, which is another way of saying be with Jesus, because the Spirit of God is the Spirit of Christ. They're interchangeable in the New Testament. So if you want to be with Jesus now, learn the way of being with Jesus by a moment-by-moment -moment dependence on God's presence in your life. That's how we are with Jesus. Remember those words in Matthew 28. He says, when you go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them, what's the last final phrase? And lo, I will be with you to the end of the age. That's how this book ends. Jesus knew that by ascending and having all authority in heaven on earth, in the heavenly realm, he would be able to send his spirit and be with us constantly 
So that's point one. Be with Jesus is crucial and essential for following Jesus. Point number two, be like Jesus. Be just like him. Now we see this quite clearly. Follow me, he tells the disciples, and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me. Okay, I'm going to be with Jesus. I'm going to follow him. And then what do I do? I'm going to be like him, like we just talked about, Jewish rabbis. You follow his every mannerism. You want to be just like your rabbi. And he says that he will make you fishers of men. He's going to craft and form you into a new person, a sort of person that is other-centered. That's what this whole fishers of men idea is about. It actually reads fishers of humans, of people, fishers of people. Jesus will make people who follow him other-centered because what is he like? Self-absorbed? Consumed with being served? Or did he say, I came not to be served, but to serve? My very core, in essence, I am a servant. I'm other-centered kind of person. If you want to follow Jesus, the more you're with Jesus, the more your selfishness is going to get exposed, the more that you're going to feel, I need to be other-centered. I need to be a servant. I need to care about other people and not just myself. Many people make a big deal about this phrase, fishers of men, probably in a lot of inappropriate sort of ways, you know. Some people start thinking of modern fishing, casting the line, sitting, putting the bait out. In fact, evangelistic strategies have evolved out of these sort of things. Well, if we're fishers of men, well, then we need a good bait, you know, to allure the people into the church. Let's get smoke that's on the stage and lights and candles and let's put on a big show and then let's hook them. No, no. They didn't have hooks. What did it say that these men were doing? Casting nets, right? They're casting nets. This is diligent, constant work, back-bending work, hard blue labor kind of work. That's, that's what the sort of fishermen were doing that he's referring to, number one. Number two, I think it's more than likely not a pun. It's like, oh, Jesus got jokes, you know? Like, that's not what's going on here, where Jesus is like, oh, these guys are fishermen. How about I make you fisher of people? Ha, ha, ha. No, no. Now, if, if you're into puns, we've got a college student that's not here this weekend, but he's all about puns. He told me uh, recently that his spiritual gift is puns, you know? <laughs> so if you want some puns, talk to Nathaniel sometime. He will give you as many as he can. I don't think Jesus is telling us, follow my example and be a good joke teller and tell puns. In fact, if you are paying close attention, which I encourage you to do regularly, the clue, I think, to understand this passage comes from Jeremiah 16, which we had read earlier in the service, but, but here it is again. Jeremiah 16. Now, context, real quick. Jeremiah is probably not the book that you've memorized because you didn't go to those Jewish schools. So here's the context. Jeremiah is pretty much just saying, Israel, you have failed miserably. For that, you're going to receive judgment. Here, though, there's a promise in the midst of that talk of judgment. And what's the promise in verse 15? For I will bring them back to their own land. That's the promise. The judgment that God is going to bring for their failures is to send them out of their land. Exile, if you know the story. The Babylonian deportation. So they're going to get judged out. But there's a promise. What's he going to do? He's going to bring them back into the land. And then notice the phrase next. Behold, I am sending for many fishers, declares the Lord, and they shall catch them. Now, maybe you're thinking, that's a bit of a stretch. Really? Jesus is referring to a Jeremiah when he's talking fishers of men? Maybe it is a stretch. Maybe he's just simply saying, look, you guys are fishermen. It's a cool, funny pun. I'll make you fisher of people. And let me kind of redo what you're doing and put a new spin on it. Or could it be that Jesus, all through his life, is seeing himself as the one who is restoring Israel back from their exile? Maybe Jesus is the one that is bringing the people back into their land and the blessing of God and his presence being known, and all the things that go with it. Forgiveness of sins, for example, was promised. A new covenant with a, a new heart and a new spirit poured out on you when everything comes back together in the land, in Jeremiah. 
Does that sound like what Jesus came to do? Bring forgiveness of sins, restore the relationship between Israel and God, give people a new heart and a new covenant? What if Jesus sees himself as that restorer of the nation, and therefore it helps make sense of things that we'll see later? Look at this next slide. Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles. So at this point, people will often say, see, just Jews. You should only share the gospel to Jews. I don't think that's a good way to read this. I think the way to read this is to see Jesus sees himself as first and foremost continuing the Jewish story and bringing back the Jewish people back to God. Therefore, he can say in his first missions, my primary thing at the top of my head is go to the Jews. Nowhere among the Gentiles and nowhere in the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Why are they lost sheep? Because of their rebellion against God. And so he's going to be like fishermen and bring them back. That's what he does. He tells them. So this fisherman is about the extension of Jesus' very mission of who he is. Follow me, be with me, and then be like me and do the things that I did, which is to bring the nations back to me, more particularly the nation of Israel. And this is how he tells them to do it. Proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now pause for a moment. Look at verse 17 of chapter 4. What was Jesus' message that he's proclaiming and pronouncing all around the synagogues of Galilee? Do you remember? Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is near or at hand. What is he telling his disciples to do? Go around the Jewish synagogues and places and preach. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's the same message. Because what is a disciple? Someone who's with the rabbi and somebody who acts like the rabbi and does what the rabbi does. And Jesus is asking them to do what I do. Say what I said. In our story, we saw that not only did he proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God, but then he also did what? Healed people. So what does this text say? Heal the sick. No, no, stay there. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Does that sound familiar to our passage? And everywhere throughout Galilee, he was teaching the synagogues, proclaiming the announcement of the gospel of the kingdom, and then healing all kinds of people. Jesus sent out his disciples to do what he did. And that, that makes a lot of sense. That Jesus would be doing and, and commanding them to do what he did. That's, that's what discipleship is. To be with your rabbi and follow and mimic and do everything that he did. So that one day, you'd graduate from your apprenticeship and eventually your teacher would say, now you go. You get sent out. As we see in Matthew 10, 24 and 25. Uh, sorry, no, first, the passage before, I think. No, 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 I think we're good. Let's just go with this one. Matthew 10, 24 and 25. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. This is what discipleship is, isn't it? Following Jesus is being with Jesus and being like Jesus. A servant follows the master. The servant looks like the master. The master and the servant look and mimic one another, and therefore we should be more and more like Jesus, including in this passage, by the way, he says that, well, if the father of the house gets maligned and persecuted, well, you should probably expect persecution too. That's the part that's cut off in that verse that you're like, oh, why didn't you share that one? I'm sharing it now, okay? So being like Jesus includes being like Jesus in sharing and embracing his suffering, preaching his message, serving and caring for others, even praying for healing. The Bible commands us to pray for healing when people are sick. Read James 5 sometime. And whether or not we have debates or discussions as Christians as to how much he's going to heal us through the power of the Holy Spirit, we know he does, and we know we're commanded to. So we should. So how do we do this? How do we, in the 21st century, do what Jesus did? We said that the way we are like Jesus or to be with him, is to do it through the power of the Holy Spirit. How do we do this today? And what we've decided as a church in our membership classes, for those of you that have done membership, is these four E's. So this is the overview of how you make a disciple. So somebody right now is a lost sheep 
of Israel. They're, they're lost. They're, they're not found. They, they're not following Jesus. Let's just put it that way. Have you all come across people in your life that are not looking like Jesus? They don't want to spend time with him. Their lives don't look like him. Now, when I say that, I don't mean that they call themselves Christian, and so therefore they must be a disciple. There is confusion in our minds about who's a Christian and who's a disciple. This should not be confusing. Three times in the Bible, the word Christian appears, and almost all of them are derogatory, like, oh, you guys are those little Christ people. The predominant language for people who follow Jesus is disciple as a noun, and secondly, brother or sister. Those are the two words that you find all through the Bible to describe people who are following Jesus. Family language, and then this language, discipleship language. So right now, don't think, well, I've got friends and family who go to church every once in a while. But their lives do not look like Jesus. They don't spend time with Jesus. They're not with him, and they're not doing what Jesus did. That person is not a Christian, as far as we can tell. Now, our job is not to go around and be the police and judge everybody. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying our job should be like these fishermen that are going out with big nets and trying to take all of our friends and say, hey, let's follow Jesus and let's run hard after him. And if some come, then praise God. And if some don't come, then that's really sad. But this is the reality. Our our calling, if we're saying we're a disciple of Rabbi Jesus, is to go out and do what he did and tell people that have not heard the good news of the kingdom. And we're going to talk more about this next week, but I just want to make it clear. We first evangelize the lost. Then somebody gets baptized and they become a Christian. So step two, you establish them in their identity as a Christian. You get them plugged into the church and the followers in the community of the Christians. Uh, You help them in their understanding of who they are now in Christ. You baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, meaning they have a new identity, a new name, a new family, as we've referenced. Then, thirdly, you equip them. Every person who believes and follows Jesus, they will be given the gift of the Holy Spirit with with empowerment to do the work of Jesus in the world. And so therefore we need to equip people with practical things like I'm doing right now, practical teachings, like meeting together one-on-one, doing trainings, Bible studies. Sometimes it's just living together, being together, Teaching somebody how to manage their finances in the way that would honor Jesus. Teaching somebody how to take care of their family and raise their children. If this is all-encompassing and it's not just, well, we just learned theology at this church. Discipleship is all-encompassing. And if that's too invasive, then maybe you don't want to leave some of those things behind. And I'm sure that there's other places where Christians are calling themselves followers of Christ who are not really wanting it to invade every area of their life. But this church wants to equip you in every area of your life, hopefully not over the top and intrusive and nosy, but with a loving, compassionate heart of care and really as much as you want to allow people to help you in that. Lastly, you export. Export to the nations, like I mentioned with Billy and Olga, and hopefully with many, many more opportunities to send people out once they have been told the good news, and they've received the message of Jesus. Then they have been established and grown strong in basic disciplines and spiritual formation, and they've been equipped. And we want to send these people back out. I mean, we can send people out every Sunday in one sense, right? You hear that final benediction? It's like a commissioning, may the Lord bless you so you can go and live the way of Jesus in your life wherever you're at. So those are the four E's of how we do this. Next week, I want to spell out more how I want us to train and equip you all as a church in this. And we're going to summarize it from this passage in Matthew 4 as speak God's word like Jesus did, preaching, and serving God's people and his world like Jesus did. I think that that's what we see, Jesus, if you sum it all up. That's what we covenant together to do. The last thing I want to show you is this diamond of discipleship illustration. I think this might help give you an all-encompassing idea of what discipleship looks like in its various facets. So the first and foremost thing at the top of the diamond is what? It's God, the Holy Spirit. That's what we said, be with Jesus. So we need as a church to continue to pursue 
uh, abiding in Christ. This is the language of John 15. Apart from abiding with and being with and continual moment-by-moment step with the Spirit, you will not bear fruits of the Spirit. You will not bear good fruits. You will continue to just look like a person that goes to church, listens to sermons, and your life does not change like Jesus. And this, my friends, is a sad reality. 73% of people, if you look at recent studies, say that they're a Christian. Then further, deeper studies say, well, do you actually look like Jesus? And then they list out things that look like Jesus. 8% of those people actually look like Jesus. This is our world today that we live in, in America. 70% of Americans think that they're Christians. Because they go to church, because their family grew up Christian, they believe a few different things or ideas about Christianity. That is not what we're talking about at Embassy. We're talking about discipleship of our first century Rabbi Jesus, who's also the Son of God, who is worth giving up everything to follow and have him invited into your life through the power of the Holy Spirit. Apart from him, you can do nothing. So God's part First and foremost is to have his spirit come inside you and sanctify you and stir up your heart and motions and stir up your motivations. Second thing, our effort, our part, is to actually get to work at doing the things that Jesus did and following Jesus in in very practical ways. There is a part that you're to do. Is Is it okay for grace people like us, we believe in, we're not saved by our good works, but we're saved by grace. Absolutely. Is it okay if I say you should work hard at trying to be more like Jesus and you not be like, oh, so wait, is this whole thing about working hard for my salvation? No. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling because God is at work within you. That sums up both of those points. God's part, he's at work within you. Your part, work out your salvation. Peter's, I mean, Paul's gonna say, train yourself in godliness. Train yourself in godliness. More on that next week in terms of our part of training ourselves in godliness. But I do think this helpful illustration um, could be good for you all when you think about the, the dynamic between the two. The Spirit of God is like the wind in John chapter 3. It's described as the wind. In fact, that's, that's actually what the word spirit means in the Hebrew. The wind or breath. So if the Spirit is the wind... That you can't see, but it has powerful effects. Imagine being a sailor. If a sailor never does any work and just lies in the boat and never puts up their sail, will the boat go anywhere? Well, the answer is no, if you were wondering. The answer is no, the boat will not go very well at all. So, like a sailor, that's what we want to be. Disciples who work hard to set our sails up so that when the wind of the Spirit blows, we move into greater godliness. The third thing you see is others' part, others' effort. If we're disciples of Jesus, we by nature then must be involved with other people's lives to help them follow Jesus and them help us follow Jesus. So we're seeing scriptures like Hebrews 3 that says we should meet together every day. We should encourage each other because of the deceitfulness of our sin. Hebrews 10 says don't give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. We must gather together. So we as a church, we covenant together. And we promise that we will care for each other as followers of Jesus. You will not grow if you do this on your own. You can be with Jesus on your own, that's true. But in fact, Jesus' presence is more felt when people are together. And this is how people will know that we're his disciples, by our love for one another, by living in community together. So I'd encourage you, if you have not, get involved in a small group. Go to the ladies' retreat if you're a lady. Sign up for the Around the Table ministry that I mentioned downstairs and get together in people's homes on a regular basis. As a church and as leaders, we're trying our best to figure out what are the best ways to create structures and ways for it to be simple and easy for you all to get together as a community and help each other follow Jesus. Last thing you see is God's part, if you can see it, through our experiences, our pains, and our sufferings. And so I think it'd be good for us to close with this. Do you trust that all that's happened in your past and all that God's going to do in your future, and all that he's doing right now in your present, that God is sovereign over all of those things, and he's using all of them, especially for those of you who call yourself Christians, for your good and his glory, working all of it, and to bring you to the greater conformity to the image of his son. This is Romans chapter 8, by the way. I'm just basically paraphrasing it for you. God's working all things. He's sovereign over all your experiences. 
And all of them are moving to help you conform more to the image of his son. So do you ever stop and reflect at the end of the day or week or month or year and say, God, what are you teaching me through this? This went so poorly in my mind. Maybe there's a reason why. Now, sometimes we may not know the answer to that question, but it's good to reflect. It's good to ask. It's, It's good to think. It's not just random acts of, well, it just is what it is. Let God be shaping you through the experiences of your life. And I think these four things, when you put them together, God's part through the Holy Spirit work in our heart, God's part through the world around us. So think internal part and then external part. The circumstances you just can't control. God's going to use them. So the question is, do you trust him? Do you believe that he's going to use those things for your good, for his glory, to make you more like his son? Even sometimes when it's really, really hard. I hope you would. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we want to give you thanks now for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. And he took on a human form, the form of a servant. And in that form, God, he humbled himself and took on suffering and death, even death on a cross. We thank you for Jesus, that through his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension, he pours out the Holy Spirit on us so that we can be more like you, so we can even be with you. We praise you, God, now for the way that your presence is known through our singing, through the reading of your word, through the fellowship of other believers. God, we thank you that you have made yourself available, that we do not need to run after you to be discipled, that you come after us. We thank you, God, that like Peter and Andrew and James and John, we are not the best of the best. We are not the elite. We are not the scholar who gets the scholarships. God, we are broken, humbled sinners. That's who we are. But you call us to follow you. I pray that many of us would be overwhelmed with the amazing privilege it is to be with you, to follow you, to know that our sins can be forgiven, that our lives can be transformed according to your spirit, and that we can know what it's like to never be alone, to have you with us, and to walk with you the rest of our days on this earth and in the days to come when you return. Father, these are glorious things, and we thank you for them. We pray that they would have the effect that you would will in our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name, amen.